For me, I've always seen Extinction Rebellion and the climate movements in general as startups. In, and I think it's a really kind of important perspective or a useful perspective for everyone to kind of begin to take because startups need a lot of attention. They don't make money. They don't at the beginning, but they have the power to change the world and they require you know, your time, emotional investment, putting in crazy hours, doing crazy stuff to get them off the ground. But when they do go, they literally change everything. And, and that's kind of the, you know, if you need an analogy to know what it felt like or why it was so exciting, it's because it was like joining the most exciting startup in the world at that time. Welcome to Priorities, the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach Lily Silverton, and each week, along with a roster of incredible guests, I'll be exploring how priorities inform and transform our lives, sharing mindset tips, strategies, tools, and inspiration to help you prioritize your own life. We'll be covering what we think is important and unimportant, what we'd like to work on a little more, and the moments that changed our priorities and lives forever. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is cultural strategist and climate activist, William Skeeping. Will started out as an early employee at Google UK before joining music label Lex Records, where he worked on projects with rappers such as the late MF Doom and graphic novelist Alan Moore. He then went on to work with advertising giant McCann London, but in 2018, Will's life changed completely when he attended the launch of Extinction Rebellion and immediately joined the climate organisation full-time. Will co-edited Extinction Rebellion's best-selling handbook, This Is Not a Drill, and he co-founded the arts organisation Culture Declares Emergency. He's currently working on a new initiative to hold greenwashing CEOs and leaders to account, alongside his own content startup, exploring the world's most interesting archives. Welcome, Will. Hi, thanks for having me. Really good to have you on. So I, I always start by asking whether you've got any sort of morning routine. Um, get up as late as possible is uh, the kind of classic. I'm definitely a kind of night owl, but I'm doing my very best to get into the kind of um, morning vibes. Um, I found in the summer I was getting up at like six, five in the morning. It was great. And having this whole day to myself and then going down and feeling a kind of circadian rhythm flowing through me. And now I am back on the pies for Christmas and um, uh, <laughs> sort of sluggishly watching box sets and beginning to kind of relax into the cold nights. So you're not seeing uh, not seeing so much daylight? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think that amazing lighting system though that wakes you up with this kind of warm glow and I've set the music to kind of come on simultaneously so it's kind of like a beautiful warm sunrise every day and the problem is is that i've got a very eclectic playlist and it frequently wakes me up to absolutely slamming techno with this beautiful kind of glow and it feels like <laughs> sort of uh early morning on a monday at panorama bar in berlin so <laughs> i was gonna say it sounded initially like some sort of like really intense wellness spa but, uh... <laughs> i don't know where the site where those are but i want to go to them sounds Bit great more like, uh, going, like white lotus <laughs> you watch that <laughs> All right, well, so uh, I'm going to start by asking you whether there's been a moment or a time in your life where your priorities have just shifted completely. I wouldn't say I've had a kind of um, overnight shift or kind of a kind of um, Damascan conversion as such, but I think there's certainly been a point at which my um, my priorities have become actioned, as in I went from feeling something kind of underneath the surface, knowing something was wrong, that I had values that wouldn't that I wasn't seeing in the world and values that 
um, kind of weren't being shared by others. And then I kind of found that I, uh, that there was a time where I needed to bring those priorities to life and meet other people who shared similar priorities. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and so that was a that was a kind of moment where I um where I sort of went out of my way very overtly to change what I was doing in order to sort of live those priorities and to push those to the front as such. And did you feel a really big shift internally? Um yeah, it was kind of a awakening of realizing that there were other people out there who felt the same way about um in this case, climate stuff and climate and ecological causes and the degradation of the natural world, and that my priorities were to have a kind of habitable planet and one in which a future with kids and a family and all the rest of it would seem like realistic. And as I got to my late thirties, I began to realise that something was fundamentally wrong, and that the those sort of family priorities, things which I hadn't sort of really considered in my 20s and early 30s were suddenly up front. And with that comes a kind of sense of the um, the bigger picture problems of the world and my desire to do something about it. So one of your main priorities is, it's, as you wrote, fighting the good fight. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've gone from working in brand strategy with startups and a career in the music industry and sort of arts and cultural things to having to, to basically being fully engaged in the climate and ecological sort of struggles on behalf of the good guys so those who aren't trying to wreck the planet and um yeah it's been an amazing and very uphill struggle but one in which um you know we're nowhere near sorting out and there's still plenty of work to do so it always feels like a kind of the best time to be doing it there's, it's not like the end of a curve or the beginning of something that's you know just getting started or you know it's, it's just like it's it's all happening full speed every day and that's both a healthy thing and an unhealthy thing. How did you get involved? What was your um, gateway drug? So I kind of self radicalized, if you want to call it that. I wouldn't call it personally radicalization, but I certainly kind of woke myself up. Um, I was already kind of feeling that something fundamentally wasn't going quite right not in my life but in just in general in terms of the the world I was living in in London in the UK particularly the kind of inequality and the sort of lack of cycle infrastructure just like basic stuff around London that just drove me mad that felt like um, you know if you grow up in a big city that you're just kind of wondering why nothing's got any better and that everything's still going round and round in a kind of postmodern loop and I ended up deciding to move to Denmark, which I've previously described on podcasts as like white Disneyland, um, in that it's just like this cute little kind of homogenous Lego land of wonderful people doing interesting stuff and everyone's having a cute little time and it just sort of feels very fair and the equality thing feels, you know, great. And again, like that's not taking into account like the fact they're swinging to the right and have a refugee sort of a problem with refugees, which is shocking that the way they treat them. Um but it felt like a great place to go and spend some time and somewhere I wanted to live. And I've got a gang of friends there. So I moved into my friend's house in um, Copenhagen, right by the beach, which is just gorgeous, an area called Amma, and was just beginning to look for a house, was doing some research. And I was on my own in this place. And I slipped a disc in my back over the summer, which I kind of realized now is probably a kind of physical reaction to some kind of deep underlying stress rather than 
a purely physical problem. But um, I was sort of sitting there in kind of quite large amounts of pain, um, just sort of like trying to search for a house and going for a few walks. And during that time, the IPCC report came out in 2018. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So this is like the real official scientific report. It turns out since that I've read more about it and it's very politicized. So it's even then very restrained in what it says and the wording around it. But this IPCC report came out and it just basically said everything that I kind of unconsciously and subconsciously feared about the climate and ecological crisis and where we are in the world and the road we're going down. And, you know, in my lifetime, we've gone from, you know, our childhood, people were talking about greenhouse effects and greenhouse gases. And we've seen, you know, documentary after documentary about nature being depleted, about animals being threatened, about an orangutan here, a polar bear there, you know, fish this, sharks caught that, you know, pandas this. It's just like it never kind of ends. It's elephant tusks. It's all of it. And it feels, you know, as you get older, you realize that there's something kind of systemically wrong. Anyway, this report came out. I totally had a freak out. And the very first thing I did was phone up my friend's dad, who is a former CIA geezer. So he was like, I think the guy dressed as a hedge who go off and like assassinate people behind enemy lines. <laughs> um, and is like the hardest person I've ever met and just was like, okay, right, what would you do if there's the apocalypse coming up? We're going to die. What am I going to do? Oh my God. Ah, I want to join a prepper group. I want to move to Portland. I want to live in a tree. I want to skin rabbits. I want to hide out and collect guns. You know, this is it. The emergency bloke style reaction to, you know, existential threat. Um, and he just sort of laughed. And I also mentioned I had a slip disc in my back and realized I was probably going to be someone's lunch. So that was sort of off the, off the list of things to do. And by completely bizarre set of coincidences, I ended up checking Facebook for about the first time in a gazillion years. Um, and there was a message from a very nice friend or kind of post somewhere um, who I hadn't seen for years, brilliant person, um, who posted a uh, link to what looked like the launch of Extinction Rebellion. And those two words sort of leapt out at me. And it didn't, and especially the other thing that leapt out was the logo, which just looked super hardcore. It looked almost like a kind of fascist organization rather than an environmental one. And it just stood out as something very different. And the language was very different. And I just thought, okay, this looks interesting. It's something happening in the UK. I'm just going to, like, this Danish house hunt isn't working. Plus, I'm now in a state of complete mental panic. Let's get back to the UK and see what's up. So I took, I think, the last flight I, I've taken, which was in 2018, back to London and went to the launch. And that was a kind of breakthrough moment, but for kind of funny reasons. And what was Extinction Rebellion like back then? Well, that's the thing. So when I turned up at the Houses of Parliament and the way that Extinction Rebellion's sort of internal mythology talks about this was, oh my God, it was this beautiful moment and there were hundreds of people there and everyone was you know, standing there and Greta Thunberg was there and it just felt like this moment. We knew we were going to change everything and it was really exciting. And the way I remember it was turning up outside the Houses of Parliament and there were like 10 people lying on the floor looking a bit sort of sorry for themselves and the guy with the flag and some police standing around looking a bit confused and then sort of everyone kind of got up and other people didn't and I think someone got arrested and we thought this is strange um, and I don't think I'd seen anyone being arrested before and I just thought okay there's this amazing logo I've been working on brand strategy there's like a really committed group of people who look really interesting and don't look like me who um you know and I grew up in Camden Market it's around that area so I'm used to a kind of 
dreadlock and a high-vis jacket and a pair of DMs, you know, I know the vibe. Um, but this kind of wasn't it. It was something else, and it looked really exciting. And then I ended up speaking to some people, and they turned out to all have PhDs. And I remember thinking, shit, I'm you know, surrounded by really smart people, and I can definitely learn something here. And they have got a plan. So I made sure I was the very first person to be in that office the next morning where they got a space and went and met sort of what was essentially the kind of initial founding team and just basically tried to add as much value as possible. So I just went, right, what can I do? Where can I help? How can I throw myself into this? And what can I do? What, where can I open my address book? And, you know, do I know someone who can help with this? Can I help find a new office? Can I? And it was just great. It just felt like I could really finally take all the kind of things I've been building up and sort of arsenal of useful people, tools, ideas that I'd been wanting and always sort of thinking about actioning somehow in my own startup or my own little projects. And then just seeing how they, this could immediately add value now and just going, this is the time that's never going to get easier. Like, just go for it. And it was an absolutely amazing experience. And it turned out to be um, just a kind of eye-opening um, few years. And I learned an awful lot, met a lot of incredible people and have massively expanded my understanding of you know practically all aspects of society and i think i'm a very different and better person for it what i'm hearing is that you really jumped in two feet first no hesitation this came up and you felt really ready for it what how did the people in your life respond um i think there was a kind of i i think i, I can't tell when i'm being i've just started therapy this is quite funny and and i've, I've just had two weeks of it and I just couldn't work out like what the point of it was. I didn't really feel like I had some sort of massive fundamental thing I needed to sort out. But everyone was going, oh, well, you've got to try therapy. It's brilliant. So I went and did a couple of sessions. And when I was talking about it, sort of just getting to know each other and I was explaining what I was doing, um, the very nice therapist was like, okay, Will, when you're talking about what you're doing professionally, work stuff and the you know things you're doing, you have quite a kind of calm attitude and you don't seem particularly plus. But when you start talking about arts and music your face just lights up and you're giving off this super enthusiastic vibe and you just look happy and excited and i'm like wow god i didn't realize i was doing that and that's the sort of having that person who doesn't know you who can just clock your enthusiasm and where it's coming from and i think most of my friends were just kind of surprised because it looked like i just found my thing i was having this sort of super enthusiastic almost kind of religious level fervor to um to kind of enthusiasm where just you know you found your crew you found your thing you found a really exciting place where you get to learn and and and, and feel like you're contributing and i think we all go through jobs entire careers decades of being a kind of cog in a corporate wheel or being part of an organization and you're not sure if you're adding any value and you're not sure if you're if anything you're doing has got any meaning beyond like some kind of vaguely um sort of cv linkedin the musical sort of level you know, chorus. It's just kind of nonsense. So I feel like when you suddenly see your work appearing in the media, pushing forward a conversation that is a global level, um, then you feel like, God, I, you know, this is like being part of a like the coolest, most exciting startup you can imagine. And for me, I've always seen Extinction Rebellion and the climate movements in general as startups. In and I think it's a really kind of important perspective or a useful perspective for everyone to kind of begin to take because startups need a lot of attention. They don't 
make money. They don't at the beginning, but they have the power to change the world. And they require, you know, your time, emotional investment, putting in crazy hours, doing crazy stuff to get them off the ground. But when they do go, they literally change everything. And and that's kind of the, you know, if you need an analogy to know what it felt like or why it was so exciting, it's because it was like joining the most exciting startup in the world at that time. And in a classic case of sort of British ingenuity was colossally underfunded, which stops it from fulfilling its potential. So is that real sense of sort of purpose, values, community all coming together? Just, yeah. And like a really strong kind of brand value, if you want to kind of put a kind of corporate logic on top of it. And I think I find myself doing that a lot. I, I kind of, I wrote a piece once for a magazine about how I thought we should perhaps recontextualize stuff again, like these, this sort of startup mentality and what it is and start calling them rise ups. And it's the idea of like a kind of startup with a kind of purpose but like it's purely purpose. It's not trying to make a billion dollars and make some guy rich an investor or, you know, get you to download an app. It's just literally trying to change the world and get everyone on board to do it. I think it'd be really helpful, certainly for me and for a lot of listeners to think of it like a startup or rise up rather than that, like quite overwhelming feeling that yeah. you have when you try then- about the climate and you, you know, especially right now, there's so much knowledge out there. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think it's really kind of, you know, I think the thing that is most scary for most people is the sort of unknown. It's like, what am I getting myself into? And when you've got a kind of clearly defined, you know, structure like a a, a business or a startup or a um, or an NGO or some kind of charity, you know, you know, there are sort of ring fenced safeguards around those things. There's accounting, there's people that have to, there's hierarchy, there's all those kind of structures that support people to do what they're doing in their spare time. And, you know, allow you to go on holly bobs and have your fry and someone brings a cake in. It's very predictable. And then if you don't have that kind of clear organization, things get messy and people start having to question things and don't know what they're doing and who to report to. And, and I think we've got so used to that level of hierarchy. So you do need a degree of um, sort of get up and go and just feel that you can contribute. And I should point out that like very clearly that this is, that there's a lot, and I, it, it's a kind of a boring conversation, but one that does need to be sort of expressed that there is a lot of privilege involved in having the time and the bandwidth to do this kind of work often for like zero money, just as there is in the sort of startup community. And you wonder why half the people doing those are sort of posh kids from West London. You know, it's like there, there is, you do need time and you do need, to sacrifice quite a lot to do that. And not everyone has the bandwidth. But if you do, and I suspect a lot of your listeners and a lot of people out there do, then it's you know an amazing game-changing thing and you will be on the right side of history at the risk of sounding monumental about it. So what would you recommend to someone who feels overwhelmed by the climate crisis and doesn't well, really know where to start? I'll tell you, really, one of the funniest things that happened to me when we first started Extinction Rebellion, when Extinction Rebellion was first starting, rather, um, was I was like, okay, great. Listen up, guys. Got a plan. He's talking advertising. So I'm going to be the all-star guy who drags in the first 10,000 people and it's going to be cool. And so the first thing I did was going smugly, going over to um, some yoga studios and was like, right, where are there people where there's loads of um, people who already kind of switched on to kind of these big existential ideas and thinking and and uh, and just thinking, yeah, yeah, yoga studios, that's it. There's, yeah, it's got it's got to be the place. So I remember going to see, going to try yoga, if I'm allowed to name names, and there was a bunch of Range Rovers in the parking lot. And I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe there's some transition that'll happen here. And I remember speaking to some people and speaking to a teacher and speaking to some people who were around or knew it. And there was a lot of like, 
Yeah, quite a bit. Uh, I'm on my own personal journey, actually. And I just thought, really, like, you know, like, that is so egocentric and kind of wrapped up in itself. And really, the those are actually the last people we're going to get on board, if ever. And the whole point was to stop messing around trying to convince everyone that they that to come on board and join us, even though those people did have enough free time on their hands. They're not going to get it. Um, and you have to sort of find other people who or or look to other people who are already thinking about underlying the community. And actually, that's what this really boils down to. It's about looking out for each other. It's about people who are prepared to create community, be part of already existing communities um, where they are not the absolute center of the universe themselves. And it's not that kind of highly individualistic approach. So I think um, to sort of rephrase or re-examine the question, I think it's just about beginning to think you know, who are my friends and how can we do this? How can we get together to, to get on that kind of bandwagon? Because it's really difficult to do it alone. I mean, it's like really difficult to imagine trying to change anything, any systems of any sort on your own. It can't. It's like howling at the moon. You look at the words climate change or system change. Like there's, sure, there's like iconic figures in history who have been seen to do that. And whether it's Martin Luther King, it's Gandhi, it's, you know, like there are people who've done incredible stuff, but they are the figureheads of gigantic movements. And there's millions and millions of people who've been involved in those. And it's really, really um, important to recognize that that change doesn't happen through, you know, one individual. It's a sort of systemic change and it means everyone has to do it together. So I think it's just really important to not try and do any of this on your own. I think it can be a lot easier if you've got a group of friends, a group of neighbors, and just start talking about it. Just start talking about what you're reading or what you're not reading. And just start, particularly if, you know, I, I don't know exactly when it kind of happens, but there's a sort of repetition that takes place. When you're in your 30s, you've heard people talking about this stuff over and over and over again and nothing has actually happened and you'd know if it was happening because you'd have seen it and you'd have read about it and you'd have felt it and you'd see society changing for the better and it's so it's still stuck in these same things so ask yourself you know why is nothing really changing fundamentally and 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 why is it still getting worse and i think those are sort of questions to pose but not to pose to yourself pose to a group of people have a dinner have a vegetarian have a vegan dinner and discuss it with your friends I feel that before I ask you, I ask you another question, I should remind you that myself and another colleague did run the Yoga for Extinction Rebellion. And Thank you. We did get a load of yoga teachers down to teach and meditation teachers to teach on the bridge at Westminster. With yeah, I, I was so I guess, being... a small contingency of teachers who were very, very <laughs> willing and happy to get involved. Absolutely. I believe I'm not slagging off yoga. I've actually started doing some myself and I found it extremely, I didn't, I mean, obviously the first hit is the best, but I'm really enjoying continuing to do it. Um, and it, it is a brilliant practice and, and I wish we could leverage that community. So you know, if you're out there and you're teaching or engaged in yoga, start speaking to your gang. Nothing like the enthusiasm of a convert, Will. <laughs> <laughs> what about, um, I just want to drill down a little bit more on this. So if someone's feeling really helpless, what would be your like, start with this book or start with this podcast? Yeah. Um, like I really like the idea of a, a vegan dinner party. Yeah. I mean, we, we initially in Extinction Rebellion started formulating them as what we started calling apocalyptically last suppers and the idea was that you'd get 12 people around a table and that would be sort of the starting point to have a discussion and 
you'd invite the most influential people you could think of and then they'd throw a dinner party for the most influential people they could think of and before you knew it you'd be like having the world leaders around the table getting on with it so we i think i think um there's uh actually do you know, can you just repeat the question again sorry if you were going to recommend a book or a podcast, oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry. like a real just easy starting point, maybe it is, this is not a drill, which I've read and I, I love. Yeah, fine. I mean, I loved, maybe not the right um, word. I thought it was yeah. brilliant. I, I, okay, there's, there's two, there's, there's a, it, so in terms of books or bits of cultural stuff to kind of get your teeth into, um, I, I, well, first of all, I edited a book for, with Extinction Rebellion called uh, This Is Not a Drill. And it's published by Penguin Random House. And um, it's a handbook of the movement. And the first half is sort of called Tell the Truth. And it's about 15 pieces by various um, well-known and unknown people around the world uh, describing the situation we're in. And it gets really bleak. And it starts kind of light with a few people who've been in the business for a long time in the business, in, in, the, in, in climate and system changey stuff for a long time and then it works its way through to people on the very front lines of the climate crisis and i had to interview people in those places during that process and i remember doing an interview with a guy with a guy in i think it was in um west africa who was in the middle of a typhoon and i was on the phone to him in the typhoon and he was describing what it sounded like and he just went what is going on he just said you know this is climate change it's all proven but this is you know it's like the apocalypse it's on you know everything's on fire it's blown away it's i've never seen anything like this it's like an atomic bomb went off and then realizing that every single person i was interviewing about what had happened in a forest fire what happened in a fire in los angeles what had happened in you know a hurricane a flood you know all these things which are all climate related disasters and every single one of them said the same thing they were like it's like an atomic bomb has hit nothing everything's gone desolate everything's silent it's terrifying i've never seen anything like it and so um that book is sort of got an extraordinary number of brilliant contributions by really useful people and it helps sort of kind of set the scene of, of like how grim this is on the front lines of this crisis and it's something which we're well guarded and protected from but we're beginning to see that creeping in into the uk into western europe um yeah, into the West, where it's been, you know, meanwhile in Pakistan, a third of the country is underwater and 20 million plus people are displaced. So the front lines are creeping closer in that book's first chapters does a good job of bringing that to the front. And then the second part of the book says what we think you can do about it. And this book was admittedly written in 2019. And I'd say that the conversations changed a great deal. The activism has changed a great deal. The governments have changed about 5 billion times. And we've now got, you know, a far right government who are intent on cramp clamping down on uh, protest and voters rather than on the toxic polluters. So I think that's a useful starting point. It's very cheap, it's Fiverr, I think. Um, and it's got lots of nice pictures and it's meant to be easy to read. So it's something you can dip into and dip out of. And I think there's a lot of really good books like that. Greta's books are very good. Um, there's um, a few others which I would really recommend. One which is called The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. And it's a science fiction book she wrote in the 1990s, um, a black science fiction author. Um, and it's a book about a young black girl in uh, a dystopian kind of post-collapse America in the 20, mid-2020s. So it's beginning to sort of turn up like about now or in the next few years. And it's just 
extraordinary. And that is one of the most amazing books. It's not directly about the climate crisis, but it's about a number of systemic crises coming together to create a kind of collapse. And I think it does an amazing and very visceral job of showing and demonstrating the beginnings of what that kind of um, that might look like and what it might feel like. And I can't recommend it enough in conjunction with, you know, other celebrated books about the climate. And there's no shortage of these and they're all dead easy to read. Like that's the thing about climate books. They're not kind of numbers on a page about, you know, milligrams of CO2 or parts per million of this, that and the third. You know, these books are super accessible. There's whole sections in your local bookshop. Um, and it, you can't really kind of go wrong with the heavy hitters. There's loads out there. And, and lots of the kind of sci-fi books around the subject as well are fascinating and give a brilliant perspective on where things might be in the future. And David Wallace-Wells, obviously, Uninhabitable Earth is great. But I really think following these people on Twitter or other platforms, wherever, wherever anyone is, in the near future, whether it's matter or you know, Instagram or whatever, like, but just following those people, you will very quickly find yourself up to date. You don't need to know the whole history of climate change to, to kind of get into the subject. It's good enough to kind of know where we are now. And that's the most exciting kind of place to be. And there's brilliant people like George Monbiot writing extraordinary stuff every week in, week out in The Guardian um, and The Independent. There's a brilliant um, guy called Donica McCarthy who writes for The Independent Weekly. Um, so yeah, there's there's plenty of really good people online on Twitter on and it's just about diving in and and I think it's a and you, you, this stuff is kind of everywhere. It may feel like it's everywhere to me because I'm in a special bubble of climate stuff and the algorithms have started pumping it all towards me. But I've got friends who got into this and it just takes a little bit of not exactly digging but just sort of clicking around and uh, taking an hour to do that. And I think what's really important is that. If you just get given a list of people and go check this out, you're not going to bother. It's really important to kind of start digging and do that research yourself. And I don't mean do the research in the kind of conspiracy theory way where you go off and come back with some mad thing thinking it's about sunspots. I mean, just literally research the people who are in this subject and look at some of the bad guys as well. I mean, there's some shocking climate denial stuff around and it's the Julia Hartley Brewers. It's the mad people from, uh, from mad. It's the, it's the very, very... Uh, you know, well-funded uh, bad guys of the fossil fuel lobby who are publicly spreading climate denial and telling everyone it's going to be fine and that, you know, it's just not. So so look at the bad guys to get a sense of reminding yourself how well, where, what we're up against. I think it will come as no surprise that one of my priorities is meditation and yoga. Not that I always find it easy to prioritise, because I really don't, but I do know that I'm a better person when I do, and my husband will probably back me up on that one. Anyway, I'm so thrilled that this episode is sponsored by my favourite yoga space in the world, Yoga on the Lane. They have a studio in East London, which I actually used to live across from, but they also have online classes and workshops. Their founder, Naomi Anand, I've been taking classes with for more than 15 years, and can honestly say she and her cohort are some of the most intuitive, welcoming and expert teachers I know. I'm also clearly not the only one to think this. Naomi is the author of two books, Yoga and Manual for Life and Yoga for Motherhood. So if you've never thought of getting on a mat before, or if you're a very seasoned practitioner, please do check them out. You won't regret it. www.yogaonthelane.com Okay, I've got two questions on that. Do you feel like that's a good place 
to move from, you know, the system is, is broken to, and making that monumental leap to how can we fix it? Do you feel like starting to dive in that that's sort of helped you with, for me, it feels like cognitive dissonance almost. Like it's very hard for me to understand. Do you feel like that's a good place? Um, And then, no, just go ask the next question in a second. do Do you mean as in like, what I can do as an individual versus what needs to happen systemically. Because mm-hmm. I think there's there's some stuff which I've stopped doing um, or have thought more about as a result of being involved in climate and ecological activism. And the first one is to kind of think about like the recycling bin and all that kind of stuff and how I get around or the fact that I, you know, stopped flying. It was something I used to do fairly regularly. It wasn't exactly sort of long haul every weekend but i was definitely you know going to new york for for a week here and there and how that's changed and what what i can do to reduce my impact now obviously i've done a lot of that stuff particularly because i've been advocating around the subject and it would be very in my opinion sort of hypocritical to be going out telling everyone you know flying around the world is going to destroy everything and then doing it so i'm trying my hardest and i've managed to successfully avoid flying for a long time and I'm certainly not planning on doing any flying in the near future. But there are certain kind of things which are just like whether or not it's individual actions, you know, which essentially we know don't make much of a difference, frankly. And what we've got to do is something far more dramatic at this point. You know, if we, we 30, 40 years ago, we could have all begun to make incremental changes and we'd all be absolutely fine now. We wouldn't have to have these conversations. But because there's a global addiction to fossil fuels, um, in all capacities, whether it's from like the synthetic materials we wear to the extreme agriculture, the wastefulness in the round food systems um, that are all vastly emitting, you know, huge amounts of carbon, methane, all the rest of it, um, all the way through to the way we travel and the, what we normalize and the behaviors we normalize. So I think there's kind of um, it is yeah, it's really tough. There's it, it, working out what you, what you're prepared to stop or stop doing or or what you're prepared to start doing and lots of these changes that we kind of need to do can be really really positive for your health for your mental well-being for um sort of your your professional life i mean there's just so many things which are really really good that come out of making sort of changes sometimes quite drastic in your life and they don't have to be drastic if everyone is doing them and i keep thinking of that fact that everyone used to smoke in pubs um and we all used to come home stinking of cigarettes. So every weekend or every Friday or whatever, you go to a pub, go to a bar with some friends, and you just come back absolutely ponging. And eventually they banned smoking in bars. And after the first two, three, four weeks, when all the pubs just smelled of vomit and you realized that cigarettes have been covering up that smell, <laughs> then everyone was just like, oh my God, can you believe we used to do that every weekend? Go to places and just inhale like that much secondary smoke and just it was disgusting and we look back and just go that is absolutely foul and i think we're going to do the same thing with a lot of the habits that we take for granted today so being slightly ahead of the curve can a make you feel smug and happy but um also you're just you're not doing anything that won't have to happen anyway and you know if we're going to get to grips with sort of a future which is sustainable or um one in which we can live then we need to make some changes but i do believe that we all need to start looking at what's the biggest stuff we can do what is the actions we can take on a systemic level what's the stuff where we can apply pressure you know i've got friends who 
have access to government officials, you know, people who know MPs, and they're still not quite having these conversations. I, and I just can't help under sort of wonder what is going on. Or if they are having these conversations, they're not dragging them into their reality or they're not, you know, and, and I've got to feel that perhaps money and corruption come into all this somewhere. And that perhaps is something we have to tackle. I mean, fundamentally, look, with all this stuff, we've been talking about climate or I've been talking about climate and, you know, mentioning a bit of ecological stuff, but there's basically massive systemic problems underpinning all of this. And it's the same problems that are sort of driving inequality. It's the same problems that are causing um, our Western habits to kill people over the world, to ensure that all animals around the world are declining at rapid pace, that young people aren't going to have a future that is necessarily livable. You know, all of these things are coming from systemic um, problems. And it's not like climate can be handled in isolation and ecological stuff can be sorted out later. These are all things that need sorting out fundamentally and simultaneously. So if you're feeling something's wrong in society, it's probably the same thing that is driving another thing which somebody else is finding wrong. And um, it's worth teaming up on that. And that's, I guess, why it, everyone's been trying to form kind of movements of movements so that what you might call the, the left can get over itself and start joining forces. And, and that's where the magic happens. I think the point you made as well about um, sort of drilling down into the positive aspects yeah. of what these changes will mean for your life is really, really crucial. Because again, people, we don't like change, right? As humans, we like, we don't like change. We like things to be as they are, our brains yeah. to be as they are. We get very used to things as you gave the example of. of and we'll keep eating shit sandwiches. Or whatever it was, you know. Um, and so the more that we can think about, you know, actually these, these changes will be really, really good for our health. It's not just about making sacrifices, which I guess a lot of people see it as like taking things away from their lives. Totally. And how can we think about it as adding adding to our lives and improving our lives? Because I, we're so disconnected from, from think, nature, from ourselves, from the things that make us well and fill us with joy and all of that. One of those examples that I keep thinking about is SUVs in, in cities. Now, sports utility vehicles, SUV ownership is going up dramatically and i think somebody said that if all suvs in the world emissions were combined they would be the fifth biggest emitter in the world so it'd be like a country which is you know the fifth worst i think i mean something shocking like that and people are driving around in suvs because frequently with their kids in the car because they think they're offering them safety and security and that somehow like the sort of elevated road position keeps them from harm and these vehicles are they're like the highest polluting objects out there in the middle of your town pumping out more you know particles of crap into the air which is going to poison your kids and make them thicker and all the rest of it and also causing climate change which is going to bump your kids off I and mean, these things are not safe so i think sometimes the kind of ideas we have that have been marketed to us as like a good thing or a safe thing or a, a better thing or you know it just you know it's, we can save money and energy and time by actually just going, all right, which is better to have everyone having an SUV being stuck in traffic, hating each other and slowly suffocating or getting together to make sure we can all have cargo bikes that are electric and don't cause any harm and that you're not at extra risk from being on a cycle lane because we've campaigned to have cycle lanes separate from roads and you can get everywhere faster, just like fundamentally rethinking the way we're doing things. But, um, you know, again, our habits, what we think of as being sort of positives or safety measures are actually the things which are bumping us up. On the subject of cars and planes, planes, trains, automobiles, can you uh, talk to us about your third priority, which is uh, traveling to Japan by train? 
Yeah. Um, so I got um, really obsessed with um, a with with world expos, which are basically like um, if you think like the the Eiffel Tower being built for the first sort of world expo, international fairs where all the different countries have little pavilions and they all get together and show off their latest stuff and it's quite cute. Um, Actually, and, no one can see, but behind you right now, there's a poster of the there is of my Cuba Expo. No, no, that, oh. That's that's the Sukuba Expo in Japan, which is oh actually, okay. So this took place. In, there's basically in, in Osaka in Japan, a very famous expo that took place in 1970, which was full of like beautiful kind of metabolist architecture and had lots of performance artists and robots, and the whole thing was very forward thinking and felt very progressive and intelligently put together. Um, I'm not actually interested in that one. There's been plenty of research and it's very smart and have a banana there. But in 1985, in Sukuba was probably the trashiest expo ever, which is borderline theme park and um, really, really overkill kind of 80s Japan aesthetics. And um, there's a German designer called Luigi Colani who was commissioned to create a robot theatre about which there's almost no information online anywhere and um, very few videos online and it's just completely bonkers so I want to do a kind of dance research project and go out there with some of my friends from the Royal Danish Ballet and we're going to see if we can kind of reconstruct or reimagine a kind of um, robot dance project uh, based on sort of mid-80s Japanese aesthetics so it could be completely lols or it could be a massive waste of time but not flying so it was going to involve a long train trip on the trans-siberian railway and then there was a war so that's off so now i'm just trying to work out how to get to japan by boats by trains by a bicycle i mean i'm just thinking of anything at this point um and going through various sort of increasingly war-torn and dangerous countries and trying to see a few which are still absolutely pristine and beautiful or you know before it all turns to shit so I'm really excited about taking that trip and I'm just working out how to do it. And it feels a little cursed with the number of conflicts taking place and the number of floods and the number of problems on the way. And I suspect there's probably a great TV series in it. I probably may never end up making the Japanese robot musical of my dreams, but I'll certainly learn a lot on the journey. So how long, how long do you reckon it will take you? Well, I reckon it's about a month if you go fairly quick and go through, um, you know, but I, I've always imagined I'm going to turn up like on, by the time I get there on a camel, kind of you know, covered in bits <laughs> of my three wives having a <laughs> with a, a K over one arm. Um, no shoes, no possession. Yeah, definitely not. Um, it'll be very Werner Herzog, I think, the whole journey. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's about. I reckon it should be. You could actually do it in two and a half weeks if the Trans Siberian Railway was working, and you go across the whole of Russia, Vladivostok to Korea by boat, and then Korea to Japan by boat. And then you either come back the same way or figure out how to get from there to Los Angeles and then go across America and catch another boat. But, um, you know, one nice round the world trip at sea level feels like a great plan. We're doing our first, um, we're going to the Alps at Christmas and doing it by train. Yes. With the kids. Cause we, just, we, can't, we can't fly. We just don't feel we can fly for that kind yeah. of a small trip. So, I, and I, we love the train as well. Yeah, I just went and did a That's consulting funny. job in Geneva um, the other day. That's where we're going. Okay. Well, so this is the maddest thing. I took the six o'clock in the morning Eurostar, got to Paris for 9.15, quick change of to the Gare de Lyon, took mm -hmm. one hour, just around the corner, um, had a coffee, had a sandwich, and then took three hours to get to Geneva and got there an hour later than the people who'd taken the plane. Yeah. And stayed all feeling kind of like we might have caught COVID. So, lost that. 
All right, coming on to your third and final priority, which uh, might be related to Japan one, which is doing cultural stuff that makes sense. Talk us through that. Yeah, um, I think just because things, just because I've got a kind of climate and ecological mindset now where um, there's a fair degree of doom and gloom um, doesn't mean that you can't do interesting cultural stuff and doesn't mean you can't have a life that is sort of uh, rich with interesting stuff with you know not everything then has to be through a kind of climate and ecological lens I mean naturally that does affect things and it is a bit like kind of coming out the matrix you know you do kind of go oh my god you know like everything's different but I but I you know it doesn't mean you can't still enjoy stuff and I'm increasingly you know find myself I used to be very interested in art I used to go to or particularly contemporary art and I used to go to a lot of art events a lot of galleries a lot of fairs a lot of um just a general kind of fairly kind of conservative stuff and in my head I kind of thought I was engaging in culture and really what I've realized is I was the kind of accessory to a sort of sales pitch to get a billionaire to buy a piece of work and you're the trendy person kids knocking around standing next to a painting nodding and looking cool and in return some billionaires just got off a boat goes okay great this looks trendy i'll have a couple of those and so you're not really necessarily engaged in culture you've just got the sort of trappings of it around you and a free glass of champagne so i'm just kind of like looking at then going like right what is the art stuff what is the real um not kind of totally standardized official version of the art world that I was interested in and discovering a whole new world of new interesting people who are far more compelling that are doing things because of the artistic and underlying interest in creating rather than and creating together rather than just the kind of individualist celebrations that take place in the kind of contemporary art world as we know it and that's not just for art I'd say in many ways that goes for music it goes for my interest is suddenly massively perked up in terms of folk music folk dance um just kind of things which i'd have previously sneered at as being crunchy and a bit hippie and now i'm just like bring it and i'm <laughs> far more interested now in like going thinking about going camping um you know a sort of weird folk festival than i am about standing around in regent's park you know being sneered at by someone in sunglasses with enough botox to you know freeze a rhino so i'm just kind of like you know what is the what is the um what is that new paradigm and it's really fun for the first time I'm like finding out and exploring loads and loads of new stuff in areas of culture that i just didn't know about and it's brilliant and there's a whole world out there waiting for all of us and it's once you get off that beaten track and i feel very conventional for saying some of this stuff and it makes me realize like how much my priorities or interests have changed but i now find going to more conventional galleries extremely tedious and the conversations that take place around them extremely inaccessible and high barrier to entry and just a snobbishness and it's just lame frankly and we need a kind of new paradigm of relating to each other to deciding that culture doesn't have to be financially driven um and at the same time being able to campaign and lobby for the arts in general now there's just been a massive cut in funding to artistic institutions in the uk and this doesn't mean that oh you know we should all go and like do folky stuff and not do the stuff which is in museums and stuff but we do need to look at how we can uh encourage uh diversity and encourage access and support other institutions around the country so it's not all london centric and 
partly just thinking about how to engage with culture in a new way. So I just can't recommend, you know, just start thinking about um, ways that you can participate as well. You don't just have to be a kind of passive viewer of culture and that is your participation. Like it's about getting out there and trying stuff. And that means building things with your hands and getting involved and finding out your crap at some stuff and perhaps good at something else. And in the process, meeting other people and engaging with them, forming communities, hopefully ones where you then begin to consider the bigger picture and the climate and you've got friends to handle this with. I think in our society, there's been such a disconnect from creativity. Like you're either an artist or you're not. And as you say, the art world is so, so linked with the financial world. And going back to that idea of art for creativity's sake. Totally. And putting people in boxes in general. It's mm. like we love to go, oh, they're a climate protester and then building up a whole world of preconceptions about them, which are almost all wrong. And and in the same ways, you know, I'm sure we've got work to do on the other side about people who are engaged in the most toxic end of capitalism. I'm not entirely sure, but we, you know, we have a habit of putting everyone in boxes instead of seeing them as kind of spectrum of thought and thinking of which we're all kind of fluid between them. And I think in some ways that's why various other kind of non-binary related issues have been dragged into the culture war because we all get on really well when it's like, you know, deal or no deal. And you know, likey, no likey. We're living in a kind of binary disaster zone and anyone or anything that by their existence flows more fluidly between those points is is a threat. And it's a threat to marketeers and in a kind of advertising and click-driven universe where you're not able to be put in a box and then sold to appropriately. You just, maybe, you know, you're into um, different stuff which doesn't fit that algorithm. and. And I think we're being driven towards a kind of more algorithmically designed sense of identity. And we need to, and when young people are really fighting against that, just even through their very being, and we're seeing it being challenged frequently, um, and just about, you know, with culture and culture wars, especially, perhaps the first part is just, is just letting down your guard and letting people get on with it, minding your own business in some ways and joining others in, in other ways. Mainstream schooling doesn't help with that either. Very I'm absolutely sure it doesn't. Yeah. And um, certainly at university level and any point where you're being asked to completely narrow your options to one very specific field. And there is something quite relaxing about just concentrating on one thing. And it's, a, you know, in many ways, I'm finding that I'm spread rather thinly at the moment and it's quite mm. stressful. I've got a lot of different projects and lots of them relate, lots of them don't quite relate or, you know, and, and it is it can be a bit of a muddle at times and having one very clear sense of who you are and what you're doing can make life a lot easier but i think in terms of the richness of your life and the connections you make and where the magic happens i think it's from a kind of diverse you know joining the dots in a cool way and it's really fun non-binary diversity in all areas of our lives yeah hell so go for it all right well thank you so much for talking to me today is there anything you want to share before we finish uh yeah there's a kind of few new fields, which I think just because climate stuff is so big and broad, and there's one very specific area, which I think we're going to all need to explore quite quickly, which is something that I'm really diving into, which is about accountability. So we talked a little bit about um, this idea of like what we can do as individuals. And, and I think the issue which I didn't really touch on there is that some people are responsible more than others for the climate crisis, for the ecological crisis. And recently it's been shown that billionaires, for example, are um, 
responsible for a million times more emissions through their investments and through everything they're doing than your average person. I mean, it's absolutely catastrophic. Um, and that then even people in the top, you know, 10% of which I, most, you know, most people who live in London somehow probably are in the world responsible for more emissions than the bottom 50%. I mean, I can't remember the exact details off the top of my head, but the stats are really quite insane about the level of inequality of emissions. Um, so one thing that we've got to look at is, is, is how we begin to hold to account those people who are either causing the harm today or blocking action on that harm. And that's for future generations and people who are currently suffering in the global south to decide what they're going to do with that information. But um, I'm starting an organization to build cases, legal cases for future trials against these people. And I think it's like perhaps time to start thinking, would you potentially be up for trial in the future by younger people um, or your peers? Or would you perhaps know someone who is? Is it a partner? Is it your boss? And what are you going to do about it? Are you going to help support them to get away with this? Or are you going to be part of that future? Because there is going to happen, whatever whatever we like it or not. And it sounds quite gruesome. But we do need to start thinking about that, how we're going to hold these people to account when things do collapse, if we don't act now. And the idea is that we can hopefully uh, begin to drive attention towards them in the present and encourage them to change their ways while there's still time. So, you know, you may have a very low carbon footprint, but the organization you might be a part of or the people you know that that laugh about this or don't want to change, you know, they're going to have to if we're going to survive this. So I implore you to think about how you build conversations with those people um, and begin to touch on that subject of accountability because it's going to catch up with them whether they like it or not. Great. That's a, that's a good thought to leave us all with. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Well, take care. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review as this helps other people find it. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.